0: Uh, all right, hey, open your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. While you find that, I just want to tell you that we will be back in Hebrews next Sunday. Um, and uh, while you look that up, Matthew chapter 6, um, every year, you know, we go to Chicago, we see my family up there, we hang out with them, and, and this is three years in a row now, we have visited the same church. Uh, it's a little e church up there. They feel a lot like Grace of Ann. Their music is a lot like us. And um, their youth guy got up and preached. And, you know, it's, it's the last sun, Sunday of the month, you know, it's like, ah, stick the youth guy up there. Last year, he was excellent. This year, he was phenomenal, just phenomenal. And I just thought, man, if we lived here, I could sit under a steady diet of this young guy for years and years and years. He was just great. And uh, I even thought, you know, we don't want Dr. Young to retire. We don't even want him to talk about it. Um, but I thought even this young guy would be awesome. I think, I think all of Grace Savannah would go, well, hot dog, that guy was good. Anyway, um, I purposely don't have a passage picked out when I go to Chicago. Um, you know, I, I I usually know what I'm going to do, and I'm, I've got it kind of incubating, but I love going to out of town and just sitting there and being ministered to. It's just such a joy to be next to my wife and to feel her body go as she sings, and I don't get to do that. You know, I don't get to be next to my spouse singing praises to God. It's just such a unique situation for me, so just love it, and I often I just see what God lays on my heart. Sometimes I'll take the same passage they're preaching. I won't plagiarize, but I'll, I'll use what they do, but I just see what God lays on my heart. So all to say, about three nights into our trip, I had one night where I kind of tossed and turned in the middle of the night. It was three in the morning, and I was just laying there. I couldn't get to sleep, and uh, there's nowhere to go because my dad's on the machine over here, and my mother's over here, and you know, you, you got a tippy-toe. There's a dog and, and all that. So I'm laying there, and I was just thinking about a whole bunch of things, and a passage was on my heart, and uh, I was just thinking about it and thinking about it. And so I decided on this passage at three in the morning in Chicago, it is the Lord's prayer. And uh, I'm kind of shooting myself in the foot because I wanted to teach you the gospel of Matthew. And we just did three weeks in Matthew 1, and here we are in this, and it's a Sermon on the Mount. But anyway, that's what God laid on my heart. So here we are, the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to pick it up in verse 5, even though we'll focus on the prayer itself. So this is God's word, Matthew 6, verse 5. And when you pray, says Jesus. You must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. In other words, people are looking at them. That's all that's that's worth. Verse 6, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Let's pray one more time. Father, may the truth be spoken and received here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, I uh, I love doing this one particular thing, and uh, I was able to do it a number of times in Chicago, and it was at, at, at one of my, you know, my, my sister has triplets, 14-year-old triplets, my brother has nine-year-old, uh, my sister has, my brother has triplets, my sister has twins. Lots of, there's lots of young people talking all at the same time, at the same energy level. And, um, so before dinner, Grandma and Grandpa are in there. Everybody's there. Everybody's gathered around. And it's, okay, let's pray. And, uh, oh, we must gather around and, and hold hands. Well, you, you, might not, you might already know that I don't like holding hands when we pray for two reasons. Number one, I just Purelled. Um, and I just saw the kid next to me go... And I'm like, I got to wash again. And I know parents are like, but it's our gorgeous above average child. Uh, You can forgive that. But anyway, so on the one hand, I'm like, I just, I don't want to be sick for Sunday. And anyway, so I just prl would that's 50% of it. But the other 50% of it is something I've observed over years. And it is... When you don't hold hands, it's the response you see from people. Because you'll, you'll see there's always, it depends on the group. If it's a small group, you'll see one. If it's a big group, you'll see three or four. And it's like, wait, wait the, the chain's been broken. The chain's broken. And it's that response that makes me want to not hold hands even more. Like my, that, the percentage keeps going up. Purell keeps going down. And that percentage keeps going up. Because it's this, oh, no oh, the chain's broken. And I think, I'm not saying that Christians think that it's a magic, that you have to hold hands for this prayer to go up. But I see this distress in people, like there's some kind of moral value. And what it is is handing bags, heavy suitcases to grace and saying, please hold on to this. And uh, so what usually happens is we pray. And as soon as we uh, say amen, people are like, eh, it never mattered anyway. Oh, we survived that. Wow, God heard the prayer. I'm saying all that to say this, ladies and gentlemen, if we can learn anything from Jesus' instruction on prayer, we know that it is not supposed to be rote. We know that it's not supposed to be formulaic or mindless repetition, which is exactly what people have turned this prayer into, by the way, mindless repetition. Uh uh They don't even know what they're saying anymore. Uh, we know that it's not some kind of mystical thing. We also know that we need not use flowery language. We not, need not have um, Christian routines. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with holding hands. I think it's a wonderful family tradition. Go ahead and hold hands. It's great. I'm not making fun of it. Um, uh, but, and, and I'm not saying that we can't speak regally. I speak regally when I pray at times, especially if I'm leading church. I, I, I have the sense that I'm bowing before the great sovereign and, and my words reflect that, right? So there's nothing wrong with those things. But what I'm saying to this, ladies and gentlemen, is um, if we flip out that the circle is broken and we, and we go, well, if we do this, <sighs> just seems wrong to me. If you do that, that is an assault on the gospel. We are not allowed to do that. It just seems wrong to me. We're not, we're not allowed to do that. Uh, if anything is learned from Jesus' instruction on prayer, it's this, ladies and gentlemen. It's this main idea that I would love for you to take home. Prayer is a child's conversation with Father. That's what prayer is. It's not something we have to Get all ready for and buckle down for and 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 change ourselves for and and dude up for and practice for and uh, you know there 's nothing wrong with having a written down prayer i mean this this right here is a written down prayer, but ladies and gentlemen it 's a child 's conversation with father we, we can We can bow before God with this sense of intimacy and that we're conversing with the God uh, who made us. So let's explore that together, but let's keep that tucked away. We'll refer to that main point uh, a couple times as we go. So our first sermon point is, there's no such thing as a solitary saint. Um, We see Jesus' first two words of the prayer. Look at it. Um, uh, Verse nine. Our Father... Now, if I stopped abruptly right there and I said, okay, we're going to spend some time uh, looking at those words, our father, you would just automatically assume that the focus is on the father. We're going to talk about God's uh, being our father, maybe uh, adoption, uh, a child's relationship with the father and so on. You'd think that would be the main thrust. And, and indeed, we'll talk about that in a minute. But ladies and gentlemen, the first thing Jesus wants us to see about prayer. The first thing Jesus wants us us to see about relating to God is that it's not a singular thing. Our Father, who art in heaven, our Father. Um, Don't you dare take the first utterance of Jesus and and make it a throwaway. It's the first thing he wants us to see. You know, um, displaced people will gripe. You know, displaced people who have been out of church fellowship for a long time—they'll—they'll—they'll they'll, they'll, they'll say, "Well, I don't like uh, uh, organized religion. Uh, well, my problem is, isn't with the this Jesus; it's with the church. I'm—I'm I'm just don't—I don't—I'm down—not down with. It. I was burned. That's what it was. I was burned, and I just uh, I'm, i can't—I can't be back in the church." Ladies and gentlemen, there is no soul that says that that is healthy. None. None. It's, there's no singular Christianity. God has saved for himself a people, a people. It's our father, not a father, not the father. And, you know, people, will, will, they'll make it more pious. They'll say, well, I don't like ordinances. Jesus is enough for me. He's enough for me. And that sounds really good. How do you argue against that? Here's how you argue against that. You say, well, um, if you want Jesus that bad, and you like Jesus so much, well, guess what? You got to have all of them. You can't just take parts of Jesus. You can't just pick and choose the things you like about Jesus and ignore the rest. You have to have all of Jesus. And Jesus himself established the church. Uh, turn, if you would, to the book of Ephesians. Keep your finger where you are. Flip right about an eighth of a, an inch or so or scroll somewhere. Um, Ephesians chapter two. Um, look at verse 18. For through Christ... We, Gentile, we, we all have uh, access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Here it is. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Do you see the picture that the, that the Bible paints for what the church is? It is that God's people need to find each other. God's people need to commune with each other. God's people need to have responsibility for one another, to love one another, to sacrifice to one another for one another. And we, we gather, we come as a worshiping, eagerly worshiping people, and we are the temple. God dwells in us individually, and He comes together. We are the church. It is what Jesus established. This is not some little, little uh, add-on exercise, nor is that, nor is singing, as I heard Chris spoke about last week. That's not some kind of option. That's not some little warm-up show that gets y'all pepped up and ready for the sermon. That's not what it is, ladies and gentlemen. It's, prescri- it's prescribed by God. Listen, I think shooting basketball is great, but God never said, shoot basketball, in worship of me. Now, you can shoot basketball and it could be worshipful. But in a worship service, when God's people collect, m- music and singing is prescribed. Prayer is prescribed. I mean, this is what, this is what Christ has established, ladies and gentlemen. Um, uh, how about this? Look at uh, Ephesians chapter 3. Stay where you are. Um, I lost my place. Uh, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 9. Uh, yeah, the gospel. So uh, Paul, uh, he's, he's been, uh, he's been um, summoned and equipped to preach the gospel uh, in verse 9, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Okay, so uh, some things are gonna be revealed about what God is like, about what grace is, and so on. Verse 10, so that through the church, The manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Is that not an amazing thing, ladies and gentlemen? God displays the mystery of this grace, the mystery of this plan that was locked away, that was kept hidden for ages. But now that mystery is made clear through the church. Not through this little guy who's on a mountaintop and this little guy who's in a monastery and this little guy who buried him in the sand for a month as he, as he uh, uh, flagellated himself. No, it's the collection of uh, God's people. It's the church. Uh, one more thing in Ephesians 2. Uh, well, no, that's, that's good enough. Back to our passage. Um, I would put it this way. Um, this is not a child's prayer. It's the children's prayer. Our Father. Um, It's not that we can't say that we, 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 we can't pray to God individually. It's true. But it is to say that the Bible distinctively communicates that we are not individuals in the church, but we are a church full of individuals. We are individuals. It's true. But we're not individuals in the church who come and go, well, you know, I'll just kind of grace you with my presence. Well, I'll grace you this week with my presence, and I'll grace you this week with my presence until I go back to the beach house. It is that we are a collection of saved people, ragtag misfits that God has joined up, joined together. We need each other. It's a means of grace. Our Father who art in heaven. And ladies and gentlemen, once we see the redeemed in Christ as kindred, as brothers and sisters, not just friends and acquaintances, but brothers and sisters of the same Father, once we finally grip that, we make a lot of progress in our spiritual maturity. I mean, you get that right, you get a lot of things right. So application for your life. Um, All this attention on... on, um, the way we're supposed to be approaching God is really about a heart attitude. Um, look at verse five. Um, you've, got a, you've got a heart attitude here in verse five. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray. Look at me with my flowery language and my clerical collar. I want all to see uh, what I am. I have a bumper sticker on my car that says clergy, just in case you don't know. Oh, and I, I, ran, a, I ran a marathon too, but still, uh, I want you to know about me and that clergyman. I'm a clergyman. Um, that, that's one, that's one uh, position of the heart. Here's another one, though, verse six. But well, when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And Jesus instructs us to say, our father. It's a child's communication with father. There's a great um, theological maturity in all that. All right, next point got a bunch of them, as you, can, as you might guess. To hallow God's name is to live it. Look at verse 10. Uh, the end of verse 9, I should say. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now, a complementing verse to that, and even a foundational verse for that, might be Exodus 20, verse 7. Listen, you'll recognize it from the Ten Commandments, the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, one important note on this uh, straightaway. Um, many a simple thinking believer goes, well, uh, since I didn't say GD, uh, I haven't taken the Lord's name in vain. And so that, I, that's pretty much covers it. I, I'm, you know, those commandments are hard, but the third one, not that hard because I don't say GD. Good. If that's how you reduce it, Boy, have you missed the point. Um, That's a companion verse for Jesus' prayer here. Uh, When we pray, hallowed be your name. Oh, by the way, uh, parents, tell your kids um, if they keep saying OMG and oh my God that you're gonna take their phone and put it in the Vitamix uh, the next time you hear it and do it because that is taking the Lord's name in vain. If if you think uh, OMG and oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, Oh, my God, as an expression, if you think that pleases the Lord, if you don't think he doesn't burn in displeasure against that, you're nuts. Help your children not um, disobey that, that commandment, ladies and gentlemen. Um, but back, back to being anchored in this. We, we, we have to be anchored in this idea, our Father in heaven. If we're going to think about hallowing God right, um, yes, he's greater than us. Yes, he's God. Yes, he's Yahweh, but he's our heavenly father. And I'll give you an example. Um, I spent time with my parents, Rudy and Betty. Rudy and Betty. And, uh, and you know, I, 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 I have, we, our family has many terms for you know, my dad, our parents. You know how it is. Um, uh, dad is kind of universal. We all call my dad, dad. Uh, all the kids call dad, dad. Um, And it's a beloved term. It's a warm term. I love calling my dad, dad. Um, But there's a newer one, grandpa. So the the triplets and the the twin people call him grandpa. And I'm I'm always confused because I always think of my other grandpas. But this is now dad's grandpa too. So that's name number two is he's grandpa. Um, But then I'll call him pop. And I'll call him pop when it's kind of like friendly. Like, uh, hey, pop. I'll see him at the airport. Hey, mom, Pop, how you doing? Oh, it's kind of this, uh, this kind of little thing. But then I got my own. Like my brother and sister, they call him stuff. And, but, but my own little thing is I call him Papa. And um, I call him Papa because I know he likes it. Because of Fiddler on the Roof. The Papa, the Papa. I know he loves that. And so for years, um, my little name that no one else calls, I don't even think they know I call him that, but I call him Papa. All to say, those are all words of affection, but they're words of respect. I respect my dad. I respect him. And, you know, he's 80, and, um, you know, they have to, we have to talk about things like, you know, what happens when they go to be with the Lord, and, and I'm going to be the executor of the state, whatever that, estate, whatever that means. Uh, I'm, like, the least qualified to do it, but, um, but I guess I'm going to be it. But, you know what? Here's what I told my dad. I said, Dad... I will do, I know I'm bad with numbers, and I didn't do well in school ever, in any subject, but uh, I, I told my dad, I said, I will do whatever you want. Whatever you want, however you want it done, you can count on me. I will carry it out. You don't have to think about it again. Whatever you want, whatever that looks like, I will do. You know why? Because I hallow the man's name. I hallow the name of my Papa. I want to carry out his will, and that's what hallowing a name looks like. You know, hallowing God's name isn't some convenient abstract uh, uh, um, uh, concept that you get to keep a distance from you. Oh, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, whatever hallowed means. I think it's wonderful to hallow your name. We don't get to do that. Um, To to hallow a name is to to live it, if you're gonna hallow God's name. so, to, to apply this specifically, um, you know, every time we sin, we take the Lord's name in vain because we haven't hallowed his name. We haven't carried out his will. It's not just saying, not saying a couple choice phrases. It is that we haven't carried out the Father's will. It is that we haven't feared him. We haven't respected him. We haven't hallowed him. And so to, to apply this, to hallow God's name, I think, is for a Christian to say, in the power of the Holy Spirit, God, I have sinned against you before. I'm sorry. I have the potential to sin against you again. And I'm asking you to please help me uh, um, truthfully, uh, actually in a servant's life, I want to bring you glory foremost. Uh, we ask for that help, that it might be fleshed out in our lives. All right, next point. Uh, regime change begins in you. Look at verse 10. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, it's so interesting from a, a an historical perspective uh, theological perspective, Jesus is talking to, who's, who's his audience? His disciples. His audience isn't just the public at large. It says that it, just in, in chapter four, the end of chapter four, um, uh, at the beginning of chapter five, his, he sat down, his disciples came to him. All right, so he's speaking to his followers. He's speaking to his flock. It's interesting because they all came from a uh, life and um, a scenario where there was Roman rule, and they grew up thinking, oh, one day God's going to rescue us from this Roman rule. And, um, and here comes Jesus, not speaking about a, an actual physical reality, but a spiritual reality. He's talking about a spiritual reality. Um, and uh, so to pray, your kingdom come, that has a grand scope. It does. I mean, it has an eschatological scope. It's got an end time scope. And isn't it a joy to think, okay, one day there's going to be the other advent of Christ. He will return for his people and set things right. Is that not a joyous thought? that the evil in this world, that the tension in this world, everything's going to be resolved, everything's going to be fixed, Uh, sinners are going to be judged, and uh, sin is going to leave this world and we'll have new bodies resurrected like the Lord. It's a wonderful thought. So when we say, your kingdom come, yes, that's included. But ladies and gentlemen, regime change begins in you and me. Um, Yes, we look forward to this great day. But um, the ruler of your hearts needs to get kicked out, ladies and gentlemen, because the ruler of the heart is you. (laughs) Needs to go. Um, Regime change needs to happen. Um, So application for your life. When you pray, as it says in verse 10, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You do not have the Germantown luxury of kicking that out to the curb going, oh, yes, well, I hope that things get... I can hardly wait till Jesus returns. I got that covered. You don't, you don't have that luxury. Um, you're first and foremost praying for yourself. Thy kingdom come in me. Take me over. Kick the ruler out. Fix the walls. Uh, restore. Uh, restore the city. Your will be done in me, Lord, in me. Change me, fix me. You see a problem with someone else? Oh, well, look at that sin problem in Joe Blow over there. I don't really like that sin problem. Look at yourself first. Um, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. First and foremost, you are praying for yourself. Next point. Oh, You own nothing. Look at verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. Um, you know, we, we pray that, and uh, Jesus will go on uh, and he'll, he'll talk about, hey, uh, don't worry about what you're going to wear or eat. You know, the, 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 your, the Heavenly Father feeds the birds, and don't worry about your barns being full and all that. God will feed you, He'll take care of you, the basic needs of life. Jesus goes on to talk about that, and, uh, you know, we see it here. It's kind of condensed here. Give us this day our daily bread. Hard for us to understand. Because we haven't, like, struggled for a morsel of food. You know, Tammy and I saw a guy, uh, well, shoot, it wasn't even in Chicago. It was down at Cooper Young, I think. Uh, He was fishing through a trash can right outside a a restaurant out there looking for something to eat, just fishing through it. Um, And, you know, I myself have had a small span of life where I lived on ketchup and bread and Tabasco. And, of course, there was some Schaefer beer in there too, but that was 99 cents a six-pack back then. But... um, (laughs) But I have had some, I have had a couple of slim points in my life where I'm like, wow, I am literally eating ketchup and bread for the next two weeks to make it to my rent, you know, back when I was single. Um, so it's a hard one for a lot of us to understand because most of us could, uh, not most of us, but a lot of us, you know who you are, could go two or three weeks without any food at all and still be kind of chunky. Uh, so we're, we're, we're carrying some stuff. I, and hey, look at me, you know, I can, I can talk. Um, but... Um, It's interesting how it's been phrased, though, ladies and gentlemen, isn't it? Most of your translations say something like, give us this day, so you got the day in there, our daily bread. It seems kind of redundant, doesn't it? Why doesn't it just say, hey, give us our daily bread? Give us what we need today. It says, give us this day our daily bread. Now, why does it do that? Um, There's kind of a built-in redundancy. Well, ladies and gentlemen, for sake of time, let me tell you what this is not supposed to be saying. Um, and there's been some controversy, not controversy, but theologians will think about it and, and they do what you might do or what I might do. We say, give us this day our daily bread. What do they mean by bread? I mean, let's see, there was manna. Do they mean manna? Uh, let's see, uh, uh man is not lived by bread alone. Is that, is, is that tie into it? Um, Jesus the bread of life. Uh, is, is it that, is it that, or does it just mean bread? So people kind of, you know, consider it, uh, try to spiritualize it, whatever, um, I think we can just simply read it in context. Give us this day our daily bread. Paraphrase. We're to pray something like, every day, God, you're the only one who can give me the things I need. And see, it's hard to be in a, in a comfortable culture. And what I mean is all of America, pretty much. I mean, the poorest people in America have light bulbs and, and, and peanut butter, usually. Usually. And so it's hard for us to understand, um, it's easy for us to forget that everything we have is provided for us by God. You don't own anything. So we say, give us this day our daily bread. It's, it's, um, it's, um, it's God, you have everything we need in every respect, and uh, we need you to supply it. Uh, my life is completely dependent upon yours. You, I own nothing. Uh, please supply. That's what that means. All right. Uh, two more. Uh, our next one. Are you saved? Uh, look at verse 12. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And then there's this quite ominous sounding thing in verse 14. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you don't forgive others your tresp- their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, so that's my question. Are you saved? Because that sounds kind of scary to read that. You read that and you go, oh, gosh, what if I, I, didn't, I didn't forgive uh, Bob from, uh, when, that, when I hurt his feelings back in junior high? Uh, does that put my whole salvation in jeopardy? Um, the idea is this, ladies and gentlemen. Notice, notice the order. It doesn't say, uh, I've forgiven my debtors, so forgive me. It doesn't say that. It's not meritorious. It's not like I've done a thing, so slap me on the back and uh, hit me with some forgiveness. Not at all it says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. The assumption is, ladies and gentlemen, that we are, by grace, by the new nature in us, we are forgivers. That's a hallmark of being a Christian, is that we are forgivers. If we are not forgivers, if we're bitter and we cling to things, and but well, I don't forgive, I get even. Well, I will not forgive, I will not forgive. Then it calls into question whether you are a Christian or not because Christians go, okay, guilty. I mean, guilty of being jettisoned from God's grace forever and yet he saved me. I mean, that, 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 uh, that, that gives you a perspective on the way you're supposed to be treating other people who are sinners too, Application for your life. Um, I've said this before, um, maybe not this starkly, but if um, you have a problem saying I'm sorry, like it just doesn't flow, and even over the smallest of offenses, bumping into somebody, um, misspeaking, um, or, you know, I mean, sometimes I say I'm sorry, just I didn't really goof up. Hard to believe, I know, but I, I didn't really goof up, but I'll say I'm sorry just because it just helps <laughs> things. You know what I'm saying? I'm, I'm, I, listen, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to hurt your feelings. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that came. Just over the smallest things, if sorry doesn't roll off your tongue freely, easily, softly, regularly over big and small things, then you need to ask yourself, am I even a saved because it's a hallmark per the Savior in the prairie taught us the prey of what being a Christian really is. All right, our last point, a real foe. Um, First off, I know it's not optimal to mention it at this point and in 15 seconds. If we were were doing a message on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, a series or something, or a series on Matthew, we would spend a lot more time uh, talking about this. But a lot of your Bibles end at after verse thirteen, right? And uh, and uh, if you have a New King James version or a King James, you'll have uh, yours as the power and the glory forever and all that stuff. And there's there's an ending, a doxological ending on there. Who doesn't have that in their Bible? Okay, lots of you. I don't have it in here. I have an ESV, um, and the reason for that is that um, this, you know. There are thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of manuscripts. And when, when we say manuscripts, we don't mean full copies of the Bible or full scrolls on the wall, thousands of those. We mean pieces of manuscripts that can be compared to others and go, okay, this one says this, and this one says this, and this one says this. And we go, oh, that's Isaiah. Look, they're all saying the same thing. They all validate one another. Um, the ESV is written on the oldest Written from, translated from the oldest, most reliable manuscripts. So if you if you go back and you find the oldest manuscripts uh, and you consider them to be the most reliable manuscripts. That's what this is translated from, and it is believed that the end of the um, Lord's Prayer, as in, uh, in most of your Bibles, is, has been borrowed doxologically from Second Chronicles 29, from David's prayer, when he says, who am I? Yours is the glory, yours is the power, and yours is the kingdom, and uh, it's been added on uh, as a prayer for the church. Okay, so that's why we're not handling it. Um, if that troubles you, uh, I can send you something, but just try to block it out of your mind for the next four minutes. Um. I'd say half your Bible translations, half Bible, in in verse 13, say this. uh, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That's what the ESV says. About half of yours say, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. All right? The evil one is really kind of the idea. It is not that there is some evil force out there, kind of Darth Vader, And there's good, there's bad, and these forces compete out in the cosmos somewhere, evil and good. God has personal enemies. That which resists God resists him personally. And so when we're talking about the evil one, we're talking about Satan. We're talking about the rulers and authorities who are against God and against you, against his beloved, against his sheep, the evil one. And uh, so the the, the application for you is this. When we pray, lead us not into temptation, we are saying it's actually a scary world. There's actually someone out there who wants to harm God, and to harm God, he wants to harm the ones God loves. It's it's a real adversary. So what you can pray is this, and I have prayed this uh, many times. Um, you, You can say, I have sinned, actually sinned. Um, it's actually dangerous. I'm actually in danger of sinning here today. And I'm praying for your help because without your help, I am helpless. Um, that's an application for your life. All right, to wrap it up, let me show you this. I've got probably 12 commentaries on the book of Matthew and they're all good commentaries. I, I've pretty much gotten rid of my like crummy, lesser uh, B minus layman's help kind of skinny little everyman's commentary type thing. We give there's a table we put them on and then end up pitching them or giving them away. But uh, so I've got about a dozen really good commentaries on the book of Matthew. But check this out. You know the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew five six and seven. It's right in the middle. It's right in the front end of Matthew there. This is a book that is just on the Sermon on the Mount. Three chapters in Matthew. This is a book that is just on the Sermon on the Mount. Three chapters in the book of Matthew. This is a book that's just on the Sermon on the Mount. Three chapters in the book of Matthew. And Dr. Young would say this is one of the most influential books of his life. Maybe the. And I would say the same thing. First seminary class I ever took was on the Sermon on the Mount. And this was a book I had to read. This isn't even it. I either wore it out or lost it or gave it away. It was an, a, a new copy. But I mean, Martin Lloyd-Jones on the Sermon on the Mount. This is just on three chapters. But check this out. This is a book just on this little handful of verses, the Lord's Prayer. It's by Thomas Watson, the Puritan, and it is rich, 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 unbelievable. But all that to say, um, Thomas Watson has some really good, um, he, he says some cool stuff in here. I, I've written it down for you. On the very first page, uh, he quotes a church father named Tertullian. And Tertullian was a Christian theologian from Africa, very influential from the second and third century. And he called, the sermon on, he, he called this, this little section in the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord's Prayer, he called it a breviary and compendium of the gospel. And then Thomas Watson adds, it's like a heap of massive gold. It contains the chief things we long to ask And all God longs to bestow. These verses, this prayer. John 17, three says this. This is eternal life. You want to know what salvation is? You want to know what eternal life is? This is what Jesus says. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. Ladies and gentlemen, isn't that what you want to know? Isn't that the question you want to ask? Isn't that what you want to possess? Well, it can be distilled down to this. Prayer is a child's conversation with Father. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We pray, Lord, that we would revere you and that it would be fleshed out in our lives and that we would understand that we're not saved as individuals, but uh, we are individuals who have been saved and brought into this great fellowship of sons and daughters. We pray that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, and that you would start with us, that you would overtake us, that you would kick out the ruler, kick us off the throne, um, take us over, Lord, spread throughout, sanctify us, bring us into greater conformity with our Savior who won us. We pray, Lord, that you'd give us this day our daily bread because we remember that we own nothing, that everything we have, even our faculties to consider this in you right now, is a gift from you. We also pray, Lord, that you would forgive us our debts. We're a forgiving people, and we pray that you would foster that forgiveness more freely in our souls, that it might be a hallmark of our faith, of our lives as Christians, and a hallmark of 2016. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us in this scary world. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from a very real adversary who is against you and against those you love, Uh, stay us, Lord. Keep our heel from slipping and uh, draw us into greater fellowship with you, our Father. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks, everybody.